A number of years ago, Don and I had the privilege in the late 1970s to attend a couple of nights of a gospel meeting, revival meeting that the late Brother Guy in Woods was preaching. And I recall one of Brother Woods' comments that night as, as he got up to, to begin his lesson. After the introduction, uh, Brother Woods said, you know, brethren, he said, uh, these introductions of speakers, he said, they're a lot like the most expensive French perfume that money can buy. He said, a little bit is real nice, but if you get too much, it just stinks. <laughs> Before I go any further tonight, I, I, I want to give a plug to a couple of activities uh, that I failed to bring up until this time. God willing, next Monday, uh, the Greens Lake Road Congregation will begin its spring-summer series of lessons in the Chattanooga School of Preaching and Biblical Studies. It's every Monday night uh, in May and June. Uh, the class each Monday night at 7 o'clock will be a study of Bible geography. Brother Jim Lewis will be teaching. And then at 8 o'clock, Brother Tom Harrison will be teaching a series of lessons on the time between the Testaments. That is, after the end of Old Testament history until the coming of Jesus, what things happened, what was going on. And then at the 9 o'clock study, Brother Ron Gilbert from South Pittsburgh will be teaching uh, a series of lessons on the last, I believe, five or six books of the Old Testament. Uh, you don't have to pay any money. And if you're not available for every session, go as much as you would like. Uh, the snacks are good, but the lessons are even better. Also in the month of July, uh, God willing, this year in July, uh, Don and I will be directing the 13th year of McCroy Bible Camp. And this Bible Camp takes place in Polk County, Tennessee, out in the middle of the Cherokee National Forest. It's called McCroy Bible Camp because the 4-H club uh, has that facility that's called Camp McCroy. And so this year, uh, as we've been doing for the last several years, there'll be two weeks of camp. Now the kids from this part of the country normally come during the second week of camp, which this year will be July the uh, 13th through the 18th. So we begin mo late Monday morning and go through Saturday morning. And like the kids from uh, South Pittsburgh and Dunlap and uh, over in that part of the country, Pikeville, uh, Greens Lake Road, they come that week. So if you have a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew or a neighbor's kid or someone between ages going into third grade and up through age 19, they're certainly welcome to come to our camp. And it will be uh, an intense time of Bible study, but also a lot of fun. So see me or see Don after services and we will get you information application. Also, one final thing. Uh, each month, going back to January of 2010 when we were still in Malaysia, each month I write four articles for a periodical that's simply called Truth. And we send that out by email to anyone that would like 
to receive it. So if you're interested in receiving those articles each month, which we mail out around the middle of the month, if you'll give me your email address and, and please write it legibly so I can read it because it doesn't work if the letters don't match exactly. So if you're interested, let me know. If you don't have access to email, but some of the other brethren here are receiving it, then let them know you'd like to have a, a printed copy. Uh, it's been my delight to be with you this week. Uh, it seems hardly possible that it was eight years ago that I was here the last time for a revival gospel meeting, but Don and I have enjoyed being with you, and I'm grateful for all of the words of encouragement for all of your kind support, and I'm especially thankful to Brother Steve and Brother Jim for the invitation to come and be with you. In any of us that's ever done any teaching, we know that far more than anyone else, the one who's allowed to prepare the lesson and present the lesson is blessed more than anyone else. And so thank you for allowing me to have this blessing. But it's no secret tonight we're talking about the greatest family in the world. Back on Sunday morning, we talked about the greatest book ever written. Of course, that's the Bible. On Sunday morning, we also talked about, in our second lesson, the greatest life ever lived. Of course, that's the life of Jesus. Sunday night, we talked about the greatest message that you will ever hear. And of course, that's the message of the gospel, the message of salvation through Jesus. On Monday night, we talked about the greatest decision that you will ever make. And of course, that's the decision to become a follower of Jesus and then keep on making that same decision to remain a faithful follower of Jesus. And then last night, we talked about the greatest day in the future of the human race. And of course, that's the day of the Lord's second coming and the day of judgment. But tonight, we're focusing on the greatest family in the world. Most people in the world, and I know there are exceptions, most people in the world, when, when they think about family, they're pleasant memories. It's pleasant to think about those relationships in which we have mutual love one for another. It's pleasant to think about that sense of security we had as a child in the home in which we were raised. And so for most people in the world, the thought of family or home, it's a pleasant thought with a lot of good, warm feeling memories. There have been a lot of great families in the history of mankind. Some of those families have been kind of out in the forefront. They've gotten a lot of attention, a lot of publicity. Other families have not been in the spotlight, but they've been just as good or perhaps in some cases better. They've done their work behind the scenes without all the focus of the media and without all the hullabaloo of, of, of the reporters. But they've been great families. And just as there have been great families in the past, there are great families in the world now. I know. I know that not everything in our society is what it needs to be. And I know that some of the families in our society are a disaster. And that's true in other places in the world. But it's also true that there are some great, great families. And I know here in Hamilton, Camp, in Hamilton County, there are some great families. But tonight, we're going to talk about a family. That's more than a family that has influence. 
And it's more than a family that's pretty good. It's the greatest family in the world. And tonight our lesson's going to be very simple and I believe very easy to follow along. There are going to be three main points. First of all, tonight we're going to look at the identity of the greatest family and answer the question, just what is that family? Secondly tonight, and this will be the main focus of our lesson, secondly tonight we'll talk about the greatness of this family. And we'll answer the question, what makes it so great? And then finally tonight we'll close our lesson and close this meeting by talking about membership in God's family. How does one become a member of this precious, special family? So so what is this great family about which we're speaking tonight? Just what is the greatest family in the world? You might recall on one occasion, Jesus was teaching a a multitude of people. And someone came and, and spoke to Jesus and said, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside and they would like to see you. Do you remember the question Jesus asked? Jesus asked the question, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers and who are my sisters? And then he looked at his disciples and he said, you are my sisters and you are my brothers and you are my mother. And he said, whosoever shall do the will of my father, that's my sister, that's my brother, and that's my mother. And we read that in Mark 3, verses 31 to 35. And the way that Jesus said that indicated that his role on earth was, was to be more than part of a biological family, right? He's talking about a spiritual family. If you have your Bible tonight, if you've got the old-fashioned kind or if you've got electronic, that's okay. God can understand any Bible you have tonight. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you and I read the book of 1 Timothy, it's very obvious that that when Paul writes this book, he himself is in one location, and Timothy, the man to whom he's writing, is in another location. But in Paul's heart, he was always together with Timothy. In fact, Paul expresses a desire to come to where Timothy is. Look in your Bible in chapter 3, and look at verse number 14, and we'll read verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Verse 15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of of the truth. And so here Paul expresses his desire to come to Timothy and to come quickly to Timothy. Now, just in passing, it's obvious that even though Paul was an inspired apostle, and even though the Holy Spirit gave him revelations from the God of heaven, Paul did not know everything. And Paul did not know everything that was going to happen in his own life. Paul had a plan. And Paul's plan is, Timothy, I'm going to come see you, Lord willing. But in case I don't make it, in case I don't make it, Timothy, 
your responsibility to God remains unchanged. And I'm telling you how you need to behave yourself in the house of God. In other words, the family of God, which is what? The church of the living God. When the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that, that Noah took his house into the ark, that doesn't mean that Noah took down his tent and, and took that tent into the ark. When the Bible says that Noah took his house into the ark, it simply means he took his family into the ark. And so when the Bible for us in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15 identifies the church as the house of God or the house of God as the church, it simply means that God's family, that's his church. All of God's children are in his family. Well, is that a unique family or is it kind of like a dime a dozen? Is it a family that's one of a kind? Or is it one that you can, as we say, find on every street corner? Well, we find in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, here are these words that Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. And hath put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. So one of the things we learn there from Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that the church is Jesus' body, or if you turn it around, Jesus' body is his church. Obviously, when Paul in that passage writes about the body of Jesus, he's not talking about his physical body. Rather, it must be his spiritual body. And so we learn then that the church is the body and the body is the church. Well, in God's arrangement, by God's decree, by God's will, how many families, in other words, how many bodies does the Lord have? Well, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to guess. We don't have to Google it. We can stay in the same book of the Bible and turn over into chapter 4, where we read beginning in verse 3, Paul's appeal in Ephesians 4 for the Christians there in Ephesus to be united and harmonious of one mind and one spirit. There we read in chapter 4 and verse number 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For the good of the church in Ephesus, in a spirit of peace, they needed to have deep down within each one of them a longing to maintain the unity of the spirit. And then Paul goes on to list seven items or seven beings, each of which there's one. As you begin reading in verse number four, there is one body. And one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So so seven beings or seven matters and for each one of them 
There's one, one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, the Godhead. But did you notice in those seven items, the very first one that's listed in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 4, there the Bible says, there is one body. You say, well, I think we all understand that we have one physical body. That's true for all of us. That's true. But in Ephesians 4 and verse 4, when Paul talks about one body, he's not talking about a physical body. When you look at that context of Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, those are all spiritual matters or spiritual beings. And so when he says there's one body, he's talking about a spiritual body. Well, again, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to guess. We don't have to ask around in order to find out what is that spiritual body because we already read back in chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body. And so in Paul's lingo, in the message that Paul was guided by the Spirit to write, the Lord's body is the Lord's church. And so for Paul to say there's one body was the same thing as saying there is one church. And if we had been present at that point in history when Paul wrote this letter, Paul served a prison term in Rome for at least two years. And during that two-year time period, he wrote four letters that we know as the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so it was sometime between A.D. 61 and 63. So the first century. So in the first century, about A.D. 61 to 63, sometime during that time frame, Paul wrote this message, there is one body or one church. Now had we had occasion to go and visit Paul in Rome, from where he wrote this letter, and asked Paul, Paul, of which body, of which church are you a member? Paul may have been somewhat perplexed why we would ask such a question, or he may have given an immediate response, there's one body, and so if there's one body, I'm a member of that body. If we had been able to ask Paul and say, well, what do you think about denomination brand X and denomination brand Y and denomination brand Z, Paul would have to say, I, I don't understand what you're saying, simply because none of them existed at the time. So, so here's quite simply, the greatest family in the world is the family of God that's known as the Lord's church or the Lord's body. Let's talk about its greatness. What is it about the Lord's family that makes it and makes only it in the category of the greatest family in the world. First of all, we have a caring father. Our hearts go out to young men and young women who lack in their family the influence of a father. And to be clear... Our hearts go out to young men and young women who in their family lack a godly fatherly influence. That's one of the blessings of being a member of God's family is as we come before Him in prayer, we can say, Abba, Father, because we're His children. 
But we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5 and, and verse number 6 that if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us in due time, casting our cares on Him, for He careth for you. We have a loving, caring, heavenly Father. And it's great to be a part of a family where we have such a Father. But not only that, the Lord's family was heaven planned. You know, sometimes we are informed that there's going to be an addition to a family and, and they'll say, this wasn't planned. But the Lord's church, it was planned. It was planned. And it wasn't planned by humans. It was planned by the Lord Himself. And it was not planned after Jesus got to earth and saw that he was going to be rejected by the majority of the Jews. No, the plan was in place before the foundation of the world. That is, before God created the world, God had in his mind a plan for the establishment of his church. If a person were to begin reading in the Old Testament and read the 39 books of the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi, not one time in his reading in the English Bible, not one time in the Bible would he read the word church in the Old Testament. Now, we believe that there were prophecies made during the Old Testament era about the coming ch church, but the word church is not there in the Old Testament. The very first time in our Bibles when we read the word church is in Matthew 16 and verse 18. Now, here's what led up to this statement by Jesus. Jesus asked his disciples, he said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's Matthew 16. In verse 13. And their response was, well, some said he was John the baptizer, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the apostles, as we see in verse 15, whom say ye that I am? Verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Peter said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And now we're going, verse 18. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, what? I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. There it is, the first time in the Bible where the word church is used. And the one who used that word was the master himself. And what Jesus on that occasion gave to the apostles was a promise, a statement of fact, if you would. Jesus said, I will build my church. Can you ever remember a case where Jesus said something would happen and it didn't happen? Of course you can't. It's never happened. When Jesus speaks, you can count on what he says as being reliable. And so Jesus had a plan to build his church. And you know what? That's exactly what he did. As we get into the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament, we read that the Lord's church was already in existence in the first century. And as we read the New Testament, we read different descriptions of the Lord's church and how it was designated then and how it's designated now. Now, I've got a proposal for, me, for you, and I want to see what you think about this. I was thinking that perhaps... 
perhaps in the near future, I would go out and start a new church, and I would call it the Roger Church. has a little ring to it, hasn't it? I see some smiles. Well, to be honest, no, I don't have that plan. I was just wanting to see how you would respond to that. Would you be in favor of having a church that's called the Roger Church? I wouldn't. I wouldn't be in favor of having a church that's called the Roger Church because Roger did not shed his blood for the church. Roger did not promise to build the church. Roger did not build the church. It's not Roger Church. And yet some individuals in the religious world, they're faced with this reality that when people ask them the name of their church, and they give the name, they have to be ready to explain why their church is named after a European man. Because there are some religious groups who are named after European people. But in the Lord's, in, in the New Testament, God's church is always described in such a way that it shows the relationship between the Godhead and the church. It's the body of the Christ. It's the kingdom of the Christ. It's the house of God. It's the church of God. It's the church of Christ. It's the church of the Lord. Whatever that designation is, it always shows relationship between the family of God, the saved, and the Godhead. But also we notice tonight, this is a special family. It's a great family because it was purchased. It was bought. You say, well, how much money was required to purchase the church. Let me tell you something. If you can buy it with money, it's not the Lord's church. The Lord's church was not and cannot be purchased with money. Oh, you can buy the supplies to build a physical structure. Or you can buy a physical structure that's already been constructed. But you can't use money to buy the Lord's family or the Lord's church. In Acts chapter 20, we read a most interesting conversation. If you're looking there in Acts 20, beginning in verse 17, Acts 20 and verse 17, there we are informed that Paul was in one place, a place called Miletus, and from Miletus, Paul sent somebody to call for the elders from Ephesus. Question. He called for them. But you know, sometimes you call for somebody to come and they don't come. You call for a repairman to come, that doesn't mean he's going to come. Paul called for the elders. Did they come? Verse 18 says, yep, they came, right? So beginning in verse 18... And going all the way down to verse 35 of that chapter, verse 18 to 35, there's a discussion with Paul speaking to these elders, better also known as overseers or pastors, Paul speaking to these elders from Ephesus. Now, here's the verse we want to jump into. Look at verse 28. Here's what Paul said to those elders. Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit hath made you overseers. To do what? To feed or shepherd the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Sometimes sincere people make this observation. 
Sometimes sincere people will say, give me Calvary, but don't give me the church. Give me Jesus, but I'm not into this church stuff. We understand the sentiment. But according to the New Testament, the Lord's church was purchased, right? And according to verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, it was purchased with the Lord's blood. Now think about this question. If Jesus left the glory of heaven, came to this earth, lived as a servant, died as a human in the process of dying, used his blood to buy his church, does that sound like his church or family is insignificant and of little value? It does not. So important was the church or family of God that the Bible says in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus gave his life. Jesus gave his blood as the purchase price for his church. It's a great family because we've got such a caring, loving father. It's a great family because it was heaven planned. It's a great family because it's heaven bought. And fourthly, it's a great family because it's heaven ruled. I just mentioned verse 24 of Ephesians 5. If you'd like to turn over to the book of Ephesians, let us do a little bit of reading together. So much is written in the book of Ephesians about the Lord's body or the Lord's family. And here's a section of Scripture, beginning in verse 22, going through the end of the chapter, that is kind of like a, a comparison, if you want to think about that. On the one hand, you've got husband and wife relationship, and on the other hand, you've got Jesus and the church relationship. And Paul uses those as, as a means of instructing the Christians. But notice what the Bible says, beginning in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Now, now pause for just a moment. Suppose I throw out a question to you tonight, and my question is, without looking at any other Bible verse, right now, temporarily, all other Bible verses are off limits. I ask you tonight, according to verse 23 of chapter 5, verse 23, what is the relationship between Jesus and his church? I find two answers in verse 23. Number one, according to verse 23, Jesus is the head of the church. And number two in verse 23, Jesus is the savior of the body or the church. And then in verse 24, we continue our reading. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So when we think about the ruler of God's family, every family needs leadership, right? The Lord's family needs leadership. And the divinely appointed leader and ruler of the Lord's family is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. He's the head of the church, and according to verse 24, the church's responsibility to Jesus is to be in submission to him. Somebody says, how does that work? 
Jesus left this world, returned to heaven, he now sits at the right hand of God. If he's there and we're here, how in the world is the church in subjection or in submission to Jesus? And, and here's how it works. It's not complicated. So, suppose in, in modern times, a, a king of one nation left his country to travel to another nation to visit with the leaders there, attend some type of meeting. Question, when he is out of the country, is he still the ruler of his country? And the answer is, he is as long as, as long as the people back home are still in subjection to the order or rule or law that he's established. In the same way, here's how it works. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has given us the new covenant. And when we're in submission to the message of the New Testament, then we're in submission to King Jesus. And when we rebel against the teaching of the New Testament, then we're in rebellion against Jesus. But the Lord's family, the Lord's church, has a divinely appointed ruler, and it's Jesus. If you talk about the church as being a kingdom, then he's our king. If you talk about the church being the house of God, he's our high priest. If you talk about the church being the Lord's body, he's our head. And I'll tell you this, I take comfort in knowing that tonight, if I make it home, and I make it till bedtime, and I pillow my head to sleep tonight, I don't have to worry tonight. I don't have to chew my fingernails or fret myself and not be able to sleep worrying. Are we going to have a new head tomorrow? You know, some religious groups, they change heads by voting in a new head or leadership or by the process of physical death. Someone's out and someone new is in. The Lord's family will never, ever have a new head or ruler. Jesus was the head of the church. He is the head of the church and will always be the head of the church. But fifthly, we've mentioned this verse probably in three or four of our lessons already. God's family is a great family because it's heaven blessed. God, in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Where are those spiritual blessings available? In Christ. Verse 7 says, In whom, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption through His blood, according to the riches of His grace. By God's grace, by the blood of Jesus, all spiritual blessings are available in God's family. And then here is what we might call a byproduct. When you think about great families, you think about great relationships. And you think about closeness or tightness and the love that they demonstrate for one another. Isn't it wonderful to be part of God's family? Knowing that we have brothers and sisters who care for us. And that's a heaven-blessed atmosphere. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read Paul is, he's making a comparison. And the comparison is, as members of the Lord's spiritual body, we're like the physical members or parts of our, our physical body. Just as there are eyes and ears and all of those things, in the Lord's church, everyone is different. But verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 12 says, we have the same care one for another. 
So that when one suffers, we all suffer with that person. And when one is honored, we rejoice with that person. In modern times, we often talk about and hear about care groups. That's common language, isn't it? Support groups. Let me tell you something. The greatest support group and the greatest care group on the planet earth is the Lord's family. It's the Lord's church. Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian and be part of God's family? And then one final thing before we move to our short final point tonight. The Lord's church is great because it's heaven bound. God's family is special because it's heaven bound. As we read earlier in Ephesians 5 and verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Salvation is in Jesus. Salvation is in his body. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, Then cometh the end when he will have delivered up the kingdom to the Father. And so if we want to be in heaven forever and ever, we need to be in God's family now so we can enjoy the blessings of heaven in future days. But let's pause for a moment as we bring this lesson to its close. What about the membership of this family? How does one become a member of it? You know, in, in, in different places, in, in different arrangements, you can become part of a group of people in different ways. For instance, if you are an American citizen and you go overseas and, and you marry someone, in the course of time, because of your U.S. citizenship, that person can legally become a U.S. citizen because of his or her attachment to you. But you can't become a member of God's family by marrying another human. You can attend the services. You can participate in, in some of the activities when they come together. But you can't be a member of God's family by marrying another human. Or in some cases, you can become a member of a club or organization by laying down a certain amount of money. Okay, you want to be a member of a country club or some social club, you put down enough money, you become a member. That's not how you become a member of God's family. You and I became a member of a biological family through the process of biological birth. But that's not how you become a member of the Lord's family. Someone said, I've been a Christian my whole life. No one has been a Christian their whole life. Someone might have been raised in an environment where they were Christians, right? They may have been raised in an environment where they were influenced by Christianity and the teaching of the Bible. But you don't become a Christian through physical birth. How do you become a member of God's family? You got to be born again. As we, as we read last night in 1 Peter chapter 1, well, go back to John chapter 3. Jesus talked with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And first Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he went on to say, that's verse 3, verse 5. Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then in verse 7, marvel not that I said, ye must be born again. So if you like odd numbers, there you go. Verse 3, born again. Verse 5, born of the water and the Spirit. Verse 7, born again. 
So if you're going to be in the kingdom of God or the family of God or the church of the living God, you've got to be born again. Not physically, but spiritually. Well, how does that transpire? When we compare 1 Peter 1, which we did a couple of nights ago, in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, Paul wrote the, I'm sorry, Peter wrote these words. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Listen to that term. In obeying the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, in Jesus' language, you must be born again. In Jesus' language, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. In Peter's language, inspired by the Spirit, in Peter's language, you must be born again by obeying the truth. The truth which came from the Holy Spirit. And so when one hears the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that's a Spirit-given message. And when one believes the message of the gospel, he's believing a spirit-given message. And when one obeys the commands of the gospel to believe and repent and confess faith and be immersed in water, he's obeying the commands that were given through the Holy Spirit. He's born into God's family by being baptized into the Christ. And as we've mentioned several times this week as an example, we read in our Bibles in Acts chapter 2. Now, incidentally, as we talk about the Lord's family and the Lord's plan for his family, the Lord's church began in the exact place that God wanted it to begin. It began on Asian soil in the city of Jerusalem. And the Lord's family began at the exact time that the Lord planned for it to happen and wanted it to happen. It happened in the first century, a few days after Jesus went back to heaven. The Lord's church is not a western church, an eastern church, a northern church, or a southern church. It is the Lord's church. And when one obeys the gospel and is born again, God adds that person to his family. Just as happened on the day of Pentecost, about which we read in Acts 2, at the end of Peter's sermon, some of the people there, they asked the question, they were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What a great question. Peter did not say, you just go home and pray to Jesus. He did not say, you just give a certain amount of money. When they asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? His inspired answer was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, the great news is, according to verse 41, those that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. What's expected of the members? Well, we're children of God. In the parental-child relationship, what's expected of children? Respect, submission, obedience? Yep, same way in God's family. Respect for God, submission to God, obedience to God. Live a life of holiness, separated from the world, submitting to the Lord Jesus. Jesus said this, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Maybe tonight, maybe tonight, that's the decision that you've made and need to put into action. We've talked tonight about the greatest family in the world. We talked about its identity. What is it? We've talked about its greatness. Why is it great? And we've talked about its membership. How does one get into it? We've selected a song to sing tonight. And we're going to sing that song not as a matter of tradition, not as a matter of waking everybody up, but we're singing this song tonight as a time for each one of us as we sing these words to do some inspection of our own lives, some self-evaluation, to ask ourselves, spiritually speaking, am I where I need to be? Am I in the relationship with my Lord that I need to be? Tonight we've talked about how to become a child of God. Maybe you are one. Maybe you need the prayers of the saints. Maybe you need to obey the gospel. It's God's invitation. If it's convenient, would you stand as we sing together?